A few years ago, there was a study by Swiss Airlines and they found that we spend 52 days or so of our lives queuing. No one enjoys queuing. There's jokes made from the rest of the world about the UK saying that we enjoy queuing. I don't think we do. The thing that gets us through when we are in a queue or when we're waiting for something is that the thing at the end of our time of waiting will be worthy of the time spent. In 1990, 30,000 people lined the streets of Moscow for the first ever McDonald's to be opened in Russia. There was such anticipation for that Western goodness. Every day in the Louvre, in the art gallery in Paris, there's a huge line of people waiting to see the surprisingly small Mona Lisa, the most famous painting in the world. And it was just a few months ago, wasn't it, where people spent 30 hours waiting in line in order to pay their respects to the Queen as she uh, lay in state in Westminster Abbey. And uh, David Beckham was seen as this national treasure because he was willing to queue. And uh, it was at Philip Schofield and, and Holly Willoughby were painted as the world's worst people because they didn't stay in line in order to see the Queen. So I wonder this morning, what's the longest you've had to wait for something? And was it worth the wait? Has something that you've waited for ever been so good that upon completing this moment in your life, you've said that cliched line, I can die happy now. And I'm Simeon, the man that we meet in Luke chapter two, had waited his whole life for something to happen. And we get to see the moment where this promise is fulfilled. And he exclaims that he can now die happy. We hear that this man had had a promise made to him, a wonderful promise made by God himself. What had he been waiting his whole life for? We see it there in verse 26. If you've got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What an amazing promise that is. I wonder if Simeon knew how it would happen. Would he see this saviour riding majestically on a chariot coming through the streets of Jerusalem? Would he see him on a, on a great golden throne? Would he see him coming on the clouds, surrounded by blinding lights? And what actually happens is far less dramatic, but in other ways is far more mind-boggling. Because Simeon held the saviour of the world, God himself, in his arms as a baby. In verse 29, we read that upon seeing the Lord Jesus, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I can die happy. The great promise that you have made has been fulfilled. I've seen the promised saviour of the world. And he looks like this. Notice that we see repeatedly in this passage the words law and spirit. Law and spirit. Look at verse 22. 
And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there seems to be a tension in our minds sometimes between the law and the spirit. And here is a great reminder in this passage that Jesus was born to parents who kept the law. They were faithful Jewish people. And in these uh, scenes that we see, Mary and Joseph are faithfully following what the law given to Moses said uh, regarding what a mother was to do after giving birth to a child and what a, was to happen to the firstborn child as he was supposed to be brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord. Now, when Jesus grew up, his main opponents during his life and his ministry were the teachers of the law. Did he challenge them and they challenged him because he did not honor the law? Clearly not. Jesus came from a family that loved God's law. They sought to honor God in everything that they did. We read this in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But when, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And when we hear mention of the law, we think box ticking legalists. We think uh, people who are uptight and we think routine religion. And yet that's not what we see here. That is what happens when the law is in the wrong hands. But in the life of Christ and his true followers, we see the beauty of the law because the spirit is at work. When Jesus was older, 30 years later down the line, Jesus explained the law at the Sermon on the Mount. And he said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He understood the meaning of it, how it pointed to the father who gave the law. And Jesus kept it perfectly. And again and again, we see the word spirit here as well. We see it as Simeon is prompted to come to the temple once again. Look at verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. It's the Holy Spirit who opens Simeon's eyes to who Jesus is. Jesus uh, wasn't there with a, with a halo above his head. He didn't come to the, to the sound of trumpets or with a, a sparkling star above him. Simeon woke that day and he set out to do the same thing that he went to do every other day of his life. He wanted to see the savior of the world. And that day he did. And in faithful obedience, he went, led by the spirit, into the temple. And it was there he met the baby, Jesus Christ. You see, some people uh, encounter Jesus in the most unexpected places, on the road to Damascus or in, 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 on the streets outside. But some people meet him in the most obvious place of all, and that's the temple or at church. And what is clear is that no one comes to meet Jesus without the Spirit. The spotlight of the Spirit shining upon him. And for Simeon, who had faithfully expected and faithfully waited so many years to see the Savior, it was in the temple itself. 
And upon seeing the Lord Jesus, he composes this wonderful song. So what are five things? That's what I want to look at this morning. Five things we see from this song and the surrounding verses. Uh, First of all, let's see that Jesus consoles the hopeless. Jesus consoles the hopeless. Look at verse 25. It tells us, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. That's about as much as we know about this man. He was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is the consolation of Israel? It's only mentioned here in Luke's gospel, this this title given to the Lord Jesus, the consolation of Israel. And we tend to think of consolation when you've lost something. If you're watching a, a quiz show on telly and someone loses, the host will say with a smile, don't worry, you don't go away empty handed. You go home with a consolation prize. You get our official show keering. Well done, everybody. And, uh, and, it's, and everyone claps because they've won a keering. So it's not much of a prize, though, is it? It's just a consolation prize. Or imagine in sport, uh, it may be in football. I don't know why I'm thinking of football at the moment. But if a, if a team is, is four goals down, for example, and manages to score an amazing goal in the dying seconds of the game, the commentator will say it was a great strike. But it's nothing more than a consolation goal there. You can probably tell I wanted to be a sports commentator growing up. Quiz show host second. So what is the consolation of Israel? Is it, is it that Simeon's gone on a quiz show or he's, he's on the losing side in a game of football? No, it's, it's something far greater and far bigger than this. The people of Israel as a whole were in need of consolation. They needed to be comforted. And that's why we had that reading at the start from the book of Isaiah. The words of the prophet Isaiah were were a great comfort to the people who had been promised so much from the Lord. They lived in in difficult circumstances. They were God's special and chosen people, and yet they were downtrodden. They were surrounded by sadness and sin, and they were subject to the Romans. But there was a promised day coming when they would be comforted by those words in Isaiah. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What is comforting when we are going through times of difficulty, when we are feeling broken and hopeless? What words can comfort us? when we're feeling distraught and downcast, when you lack any feeling of of peace or forgiveness? Can words be any help at all? When we're in need of consoling, sometimes we need just the presence of someone to help us. Those make the situations easier, don't they? But sometimes being there with a person is is exactly what we need when we feel lost. And that's why Jesus was the consolation of Israel. The most comforting word that people could receive was the word become flesh. John tells us in John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The best comfort that God could give his people was not the word of a prophet, 
was not the announcement of a king, although those two things were used in the past, but by dwelling with his people in person. That's how he comforted them. For it pleased the Father that in him, it says later on in the scriptures, all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's what it means to be consoled. Secondly, Jesus came to save sinners. Look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There's something wonderful about holding a little baby in your arms. Football and babies. I don't know why those two things are on my mind. But whether that be your own child or a niece or a nephew or the baby of a friend, looking at all those tiny features, those little expressions, their tiny fingernails and the the little sneezes that they do and the yawns. But in this moment, as well as seeing a wonderful little baby, I'm sure Jesus was cute. It was a moment where Simeon held salvation in his arms. Don't know why I should be used to carrying a baby. I don't carry daisy like this. Um, You see, salvation, God's plan to save his people, was a person. Salvation is being saved from ruin, from sin and death and hell, being made new. And salvation is not achieved by your lifestyle. It's not achieved by who your parents are and whether they brought you along to church on a Sunday. Salvation comes through a person, Jesus himself. As Jesus explained later on, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, people sometimes quote that verse in opposition to Christianity. They say, it's it's narrow-minded, it's arrogant. How can you say there's only one way? And yet we can't read the Christmas story And think to ourselves, this Christianity business is pretty small-minded, isn't it? Because there is a wideness and there's a comprehensiveness to it all. The people that we read about in these early narratives of Jesus' life, they're rough and ready shepherds. There is a faithful man and woman in the temple. They're wealthy astrologers from from ancient Iraq. It's it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a, a certain demographic that Jesus came to exclusively. There's only one thing that they all have in common, and that's the fact that they're all sinners. There is a variety and a breadth to God's salvation plan. God's grace is deep and it's wide. And as Simeon says, Christ would be a a light to bring your revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There would be people saved within Israel, like Simeon and Anna. But the work wouldn't stop there. Jesus told his disciples to go out in the power of the Spirit, to go to the ends of the earth. And they do, and it spreads to the rest of the world. And the the Bible tells us that they went out to Turkey and to Greece and to Malta and Italy. And other history books tell us that they went to Spain and Egypt and India and Sri Lanka and Algeria and other parts of North Africa and Portugal and Morocco and France and Austria, and Switzerland, and Belgium. And within 300 years, there were Christians here in Britain. 
And the salvation of the Lord continues today. 111 years ago, they they did a survey and they worked out that two thirds of the world, um, the Christians of, of two thirds of the world lived in Europe. That's where the bulk of the Christians have been for the last thousand years in Europe. But today it's only a quarter of all Christians who live in Europe. More than a third live in North and South America. A quarter of Christians live in sub-Saharan Africa. And one in eight Christians are found in Asia and the Pacific. You see, the good news about Jesus isn't just for one group of people. It's for the whole world. That's why you find Christians in every continent. Heaven will be full of people from all nations worshipping Jesus. It's a revelation to the Gentiles. Thirdly, Jesus lifts the fallen but brings the mighty down. He uplifts the fallen but brings the mighty down. Verse 34, the second half of verse 34 says, Behold, this child is destined for the fallen rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. You could say, couldn't you, that Jesus is magnetic. If you've put two magnets together, you'll know there are two outcomes possible. It's one of the first lessons in science you do in primary school, I believe. And magnets, they attract and they repel, don't they? And Jesus is like that. He attracts and to others he repels. And Simon prophesies that this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. Not everyone will be for this man, Jesus. Jesus does transform lives, doesn't he? Many, many people in this room today will have a a before and after divide in their lives where Jesus changed everything. There was a transformation from, from death to life. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy and straightforward. And that doesn't mean everyone will like you and respect you if you devote your life to Christ. Knowing Jesus means that you will be spoken against. It brings arguments and upset. It polarizes families, brothers and sisters, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, friends against each other. Jesus himself said, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Yeah, I think we did. But he says, I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. This division is because of Jesus. Yes, Jesus does bring peace. He may even be the most peace, he is the most peace you can ever receive, but he may even be the reason for the discomfort and the awkwardness and the pain in your life this Christmas, for the awkward family gatherings, why some people have chosen, I don't want to celebrate with them this year, why some people don't consider you a friend anymore. The angels came, didn't they? They pronounced, as we looked at last week, the birth of the Savior in Luke 1, and they promised peace But notice that it's peace on whom God's favor dwells. You see, it's not a mushy, feel-good, fuzzy, holidays-are-coming feeling. And one preacher puts it like this. Christmas isn't about some sort of magic 
Messiah dust that God sprinkles on the world so everyone can have the week off and listen to Mariah Carey songs. It's about the meekness and majesty that is Emmanuel, God with us. Peace with God is more wonderful than anything. And it may mean that people reject you and delete you from Facebook, but it means that you will be right with God. And notice that Simeon says that he will be the cause of the rise and fall of many. That's because those who are hated, who have given everything to live for Christ, who are poor and needy for him, they will be the ones who inherit eternal life. The humble will be lifted up. But Christ will also be the cause of the fall of others. Those who have put their eggs in this life's basket, who have lived for this world, who have chased success and power and pleasure and have neglected Christ, there is a day coming when they will fall, where they will see Christ in all his glory and splendor, and they will be filled with shame and regret because it will be too late. Don't be in that position when Christ comes. Fourthly, Jesus breaks hearts. Look at verse 35. Simeon has some sobering words for Mary. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Children break parents' hearts. Most of the time they bring great joy. They make us laugh. They make us proud. And they enrich our lives. But children sometimes bring great disappointment. They make mistakes. They rebel. There is sadness when they leave home. Parenting is is difficult. There's a film called uh, Mass, which came out earlier this year. It's not an easy film to watch, uh, but it explores the heartbreak of what it is to be a parent. The film focuses on, on two sets of parents. And they... I've never met each other before, and they sit across uh, the room from each other for the duration of this film, sat around a table, and they discuss something that both of their children have been involved in, uh, a tragic incident. And one child was the perpetrator of this tragedy, and the other, the victim. And yet both of these parents are left heartbroken. It's about a mass shooting in America. Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable film. I would, I would recommend it. But it shows you that regardless of whether your child is a, is a victim or, a, or the perpetrator, whatever it is, children bring about difficulty and heartbreak. And Mary had the wonderful privilege of being the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she sang of that great privilege in Luke 1. She said, God has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things, and holy is his name. But Simeon is reminding her here that it came with a, a frightening responsibility. Not because he would disappoint her by doing something stupid. Not because he would make a decision that would, would, would cause her uh, great harm in, in, in a way that is comparable to what we could do. Jesus was the sinless one. But at the cross, Mary's heart and her soul would be pierced. You see, death is awful, isn't it? It's a consequence of the fall, but there's something even more tragic and awful about a parent seeing their own child die. And as Jesus died, his mother watched on in confusion, 
and in hopelessness at the foot of the cross. So where is the hope in that? Because this, as believers, we remember that even in the most painful moments of our lives, the saddest and the most difficult things to comprehend is for our good. And the cross is the most wonderful example of that. The most harrowing, the most dark moment in all of history brought about the greatest good. As Jesus suffered and took upon himself the sin, the guilt, the shame of the world and took the punishment that we deserve, he saved us. What a saviour he is. So in all that we face, small disappointments or seasons of great sorrow, we know that if we are in Christ, that all things are for our good and his glory. We may not understand them at the time. Often we don't, but there's a day coming, whereas, um, listen to this quote, it's Tim Keller paraphrasing Tolkien for, that wrote Lord of the Rings. There's a day coming where everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost in the first place. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for once having been broken and lost in the first place. Have hope, brothers and sisters. Lastly, Jesus reveals our hearts. Jesus reveals our hearts. Look at verse 35 at the end there, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is the revealer of what your heart is thinking. He shows us who we are. What we think of Jesus is not a trivial thing. It it shows us what we think of God because he is God. And Simeon and the lady that we mentioned at the end there, Anna, were two people who were prepared for their savior. Their whole lives have been a case of, of waiting for him to come. And when we sing Joy to the World, we sing, don't we? Let every heart prepare him room. These are two people who had prepared him room. We sometimes forget among all the the scribes and the Pharisees and all the other people who we see opposing Christ, that there were faithful Jews who were eagerly waiting for their saviour. Are you eagerly awaiting the Lord Jesus? We are living on the other side of Christ to, to Simeon and to Anna. You've not had to wait for him to come a first time. He's already been. And yet, is he the most important person in your life? Or is he an afterthought? Are you ready for his return? Are you ready to see him when he comes in glory and in power? You see, we only truly see our need for Jesus when we see how empty the things of this world truly are. I was having a conversation with my nephews yesterday. And I said, what are you most excited about for Christmas? And the most excited thing for them was the fact that they could possibly get an energy drink for Christmas. And if you're under the age of 18, you'll know that there's a certain energy drink that lots of people want for Christmas this year. The world tells you to chase after certain things. At the moment, it's energy drinks. I don't know what it'll be next year, but it'll be something else. Chase after something that is worthwhile. The one who can console the brokenhearted, who can comfort the downcast, who can save sinners. And he was a baby who was held in the arms of, of Simeon. 
who grew up without sin. It's who Isaiah was expecting when he said, shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. As I close, let me ask you, is there something that you're waiting in life for so that you can say, I can die happy now? Maybe it's, it, it's, it's an energy drink. I really hope it isn't. Is there some experience some landmark, some special moment that you're waiting for. It might be finishing school. It might be getting married. It might be starting a family. It might be achieving something professionally. It might be finishing something professionally and retiring at last. Or maybe it's to go on an amazing holiday experience or moving into a dream home. Can I tell you something this morning? None of those things will complete you. They will promise that they will, but they won't. They don't give you the fulfillment that they say they will. Has today's message revealed something of your own heart? Does meeting with Jesus himself feature on that list? You see, Christmas is full of distractions. It's full of busyness and parties and food and celebrations and time with family. All these things are wonderful things, but it can take our eyes away from Jesus. Where's your hope? When the rubber hits the road, when life gets difficult, when the time comes and you don't know what to do, and you perhaps have to face your own mortality, where will you have found your salvation? Can any of those things that I mentioned before save you? Can any of those things bring hope to you when you are thinking about death? Can holidays or homes or marriages or families, can they save you? I think you can answer that question yourself. They don't give you hope in life and death. So don't be distracted by the bright lights, the fleeting pleasures and things that do not last. Let your eyes instead be like Simeon's, who was able to say this with, with such confidence as he looked at a baby. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful news. We thank you that salvation was born into the world, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God, uh, the word became flesh. We thank you for this amazing news that someone was willing to come. God himself was willing to come and save us from the depth of our sin and our hopelessness, to save us from death and hell, and to help us to, to live a life worthy of the calling that has been made would you help us to put our trust in him would you help us to take our eyes uh, fix our eyes upon the lord jesus and not to be distracted by the things of this world we pray these things in his precious name amen we're going to sing a, a wonderful song called salvation is born uh, prophets foretold him the promise of god the hope of salvation and light of the world Born in a stable and born as a man, born to fulfill God's redeeming plan. Come, let us adore him. Jesus, the hope of the world. Come worship before him. Christ the Messiah has come. Salvation is born. We're going to sing this song and then Steve is going to come.